Flame On on 2FM with Green Fern. Fuel your day with Green Fern's new high-protein cooked chicken breast fillets. 100% natural and packed with flavour. Thanks to Jenny Green for entertaining us this afternoon. It's Tuesday the 21st of December and this is Game On. Coming up today, Leinster's trip to Thomond is off as COVID cancels the Christmas Interpro. In soccer, Graham Gartland talks domestic fixtures and we've Mark Langdon on football's return to empty stadia. Uh, this will, of course, make sports matches, including football, effectively spectator-free over this three-week period, a, a situation similar to that in Wales from Boxing Day. In swimming, Mona McSherry will reflect on her medal-winning week at the World Short Course Championships. It's really important to have great friends like that that you can kind of lean on when you are a little bit more nervous. And, you know, it was really nice. We were dancing before I went to the call room. And, you know, that's that's what it's all about, you know, just having fun and really enjoying it. And I think that's why I performed so well in the final. All that, plus we'll find out if the national fitness games are for you. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. Game On on 2FM. Now, welcome along. I am delighted to be joined in studio by Graeme Gartland, former footballer and now underage coach at Shamrock Rovers. Graeme, it sounds like we're pretty much heading back to football without fans. It feels like only a matter of time. We heard Nicola Sturgeon there talking about Scotland and Wales are going to do something similar where we will see very, very limited, essentially no fans, no supporters at football. And if you think that it's going to happen in Scotland and Wales, there's a good chance at some stage it might happen in the UK as well and I think as sports fans it's something that's very difficult to return to how do you feel about it? Yeah it's difficult yeah um, obviously having come back gone from having no one on the ground to then coming back to everybody back in the euphoria of that and you know the sort of relief the fans felt to be back in the ground and then they enjoyed the atmosphere thing to be a bit more um, to then take it away I think it'd be difficult but sometimes you have to do these things to get through uh, who am I to sort of question their decision I just know that it's, it can affect the players because going from full stadiums to empty stadiums is not what the players want and it's not what the fans want because they've been starved of football for so long and starved of sport for so long that I think the, the there was an appreciation that when it came back and when the the fans got back into the stadium they, they tend to have a they appreciate it a lot more and they enjoyed it a lot more yeah, hopefully we won't hear the return of that fake crowd noise. I think I'd prefer the silence than having to deal with that again. It wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. I didn't like it. No, I didn't like. I didn't like watching it on the telly. I didn't like. Sometimes it was unrealistic, or there was zoos and as when the ball wasn't close to the goal, or you know, or it was a little bit late or delayed. And I just, yeah, I didn't like it. Bring back the, the sort of. I'd rather an empty stadium hearing the shouting and the roaring than than hearing the fake noise. So the way it is going to work in Scotland, they will have 500 fans, and in fairness, 500 fans could make um, a lot of noise when they needed when they need to. But there are a lot of calls as well in Scotland for the winter break to be brought forward. So have that now rather than having the capped capacity. So Celtic and Motherwell are the two of the teams that have called for the Scottish Premiership winter break to be moved forward to avoid the fixtures being impacted by capped capacities. But it doesn't look like that is something that is going to happen. You've played in Scotland. Um, it's a busy period in <laughs> in this time. This this is a busy period. A lot, a lot of games and important football is to people at this time over there yeah it's massive I don't think people realise how big it is um, in Scotland it's it's basically 
the whole of Scotland is, is involved in football. They've radio shows every night about Scottish football. They've breakfast shows about it. The whole the whole country is wrapped around their football. They don't speak much about the English Premiership that often. Um, all the papers, it's all about Scotland. The winter break was always contentious in Scotland because you never knew when the bad winter was going to hit. I, I was there for three years in St. Johnson and the bad winter hit at the end of January. So we had a week off at the start of January and then all our games were cancelled at the end of January and it led to a backlog. The New Year's Day fixtures in, in Scotland are, are are really big. You know, the, the, the local games, Dundee will play Dundee United, Hearts will play Hibs, Aberdeen will probably play Ross County, um, Motherwell will play somebody close by, if it was Hamilton that would be there. But And obviously then you have the old the Celtic Rangers would be a big fixture around New Year's time. So for the fans to miss out on that big game, which is their, probably the, the biggest one in the calendar, um, but the biggest one of the season, sorry, because it's only the start of the new calendar, but it'd be the biggest one of the season. Um, that'll be probably, that'd be difficult for the fans to take. We've been watching a bit of Scottish football more, well, I have anyway, in, in my house, more than we ever have before because of Liam Scales. Did you not watch it when I was over there coaching? Uh, more than ever before, a Thanks little very bit. Much. <laughs> um, so, Liam Scales has got his first trophy for Celtic winning the League Cup and it seems like he's settling in there so well and must be brilliant as somebody who's probably watched him quite a lot in Shamrock Rovers to see him going so well. Yeah, again, it was only when I started commentating on the games that I seen him up close I remember seeing him a year a year and a bit ago and I spoke to Stephen about him I says, he surprised me how good he was and I left his left side of centre back stand out a lot because they, they naturally come out of the game and, and it looks like they've a little bit more time on that side because they're not having to check back sometimes when you see right, right side of centre backs playing left side they always end up checking back inside so um it doesn't surprise me that he's gone on and do that because I think technically he's better than people give him credit for. Physically, he can handle the game. Um, it took him a little while to sort of settle into the squad and how they were trying to play because they, they actually play their full-backs on the inside. Sometimes they're going forward. If you've seen the goal he scored against Dundee United, he does it from an inside inside left channel. So he's been playing left-back at times. He can play centre-back. So it doesn't surprise me more to do with his temperament more than, more than his talent. His temperament is he's able to handle a big club. Yeah, he seems like somebody that has such a big future ahead of him. Even though it feels like he's been playing for a long time, he's still quite young. Yeah, I think I, I made a comment on one of the podcasts that I could see him maybe getting 50 caps. And I remember thinking, oh, I've gone a little bit further here. But when you compare him to Seamus Coleman, who's similar, Seamus went over late as well. And Seamus is... Look at the career he's had and is still having. He's a fantastic um, advert for the league and he's a fantastic advert for Irish football. So you can see if we could replicate what Seamus done, he'd be doing really, really well. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to following his career. And now we are going to turn our attention to rugby. Big news a little bit earlier on today that the URC clash between Munster and Leinster, which was scheduled for Thoman Park on St. Stephen's Day, was postponed due to COVID-19 cases in the Leinster squad. Keen Tracy of the Irish Independent is with us now to bring us up to date on this. Keen, just given the fact that the suggestion was around the time of the Montpellier game that Leinster did have enough players to go and play that in France and that was only a few days ago it came as quite a surprise that now this game has been called off as well Yeah, hi Marie um, sorry to get away from the census deja vu talking about this again isn't it when you think back to this time last year the Leinster-Munster game was also postponed it's just such a shame that we're here but look um, yeah that was the case last week but my understanding is uh, I guess as with everything in all walks of life right now it's been a very fast 
uh, moving situation. Leinster have had more cases. I think last week, their my understanding is that their case numbers might have been upwards of, upwards of twenty. Whereas now you're looking at perhaps upwards of 30 players. So it's a lot. Um, I think rugby is complicated by the fact that close contacts are a huge issue too. You think like of, you know, A forwards packing down in a scrum and how easy it is for the virus to spread through there. So like I know even last week when Leinster were hoping to go to Montpellier, they were actually training, uh, doing scrum sessions with masks on and stuff like that. So they have been trying to take every precaution possible and I don't even think they've been in UCD where they train since the end of last week. So um, it just goes to show that um, it's just spreading through all walks of life really, isn't it? Yeah, and I think rugby, when I think back to when we were at the the start of the pandemic almost two years ago now and, and there was so much discussion about rugby and the issues that it would have because of the close proximity of the players in the likes of the pack and they managed to overcome it but because this new variant mm. is a lot more transmissible it does seem like it's going to be more of an issue for the likes of rugby. Yeah, it absolutely is and, and that it's spot on and you know, you can't really put young young players who haven't played a game of professional rugby into into a front row. Basically, it's just it's just not safe. So it's probably not a surprise that this decision has been made. It's, look, it's really disappointing. I mean, the the game had been sold out for a good few weeks, and that's probably something worth mentioning as well. That like I see Pat Lamb today coming out and saying that the English Premiership won't survive another lockdown, but. The Irish provinces are in a very precarious situation as well in terms of the financial hit that, that this is going to cause. So I know that the attendance had gone back down to 5,000 and now for the game not to go ahead at all is really disappointing. I suppose if you want to take a glass half full approach, it is being postponed, which is the hope it's not being cancelled. Um, this time last year when it was postponed, the game ended up going ahead in January um, because there ended up being a free weekend because of the Champions Cup now. Obviously, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But if you want to take a glass half foot approach, hopefully by the time this monster Denster game at Toma Park goes ahead, that it could be played um, in front of more than 5,000 supporters. But hard to predict anything these days, Marie. Yeah, I think that's the reality of it, isn't it? That we just don't know. So while having 5,000 fans in around Christmas time and having it on the television is an attractive prospect, just even putting it back three or four weeks and getting a full house is an even more attractive prospect just from the fact that they need the money, like the provinces need the money to keep operational and, and to keep competitive. Um, but we just don't know what is going to happen really and that seems to be the case with everything. And I think as well, Keen, when you look at the difficulties that Munster had in, in just getting everything back together, like a section of their squad um, had to deal with COVID and then having to be in different locations and it took a long time for the full squad to get back Back together and and to be able to training and train in the one place as well. So it is really really disruptive. Yeah, it is. And look, this festive fixture on St Stephen's Day is always a massive massive day in the rugby calendar. I think everyone looks forward to either watching it on TV or else getting a chance to go to it. And you're right. Today was the first time in nine weeks that the full monster squad and coaching staff were together. So you can imagine there would have been a pretty good mood in, in Limerick today with getting them all back together and now they're faced with this and you're right it's been such a tough few weeks for Munster in particular but I guess more more people's thoughts are probably with Leinster at the moment because they're the ones kind of with the, with the outbreak of Covid within their squad like I said 
perhaps more than 30 players um, affected by whether it's positive cases, close contacts, they have a couple of injuries as well. So, um, yeah, look, we're just fingers crossed that the Ulster Connacht game once even say isn't affected as well, and we do get some rugby to watch because. Uh, it could be a long day otherwise. <laughs> it absolutely could, Keen. When you think that that's what we look forward to, to most on Stephen's Day is having those inter-provincials, but it does look like, for now anyway, that Connacht Ulster game will go ahead, but who knows what's going to happen. And just in terms of the calendar then, and just the fact we saw yesterday that the South African games are going to be postponed for a little while and we're starting to impinge now on the international windows and then we're going to have to have some rescheduled European Cup games as well. Are there things in general pretty here when we look at the next few months for rugby? Oh, I think you'd have to say there are. I mean, I'd imagine a lot of the, the Six Nations unions will be sitting uncomfortably as well because um, it goes back to our point about like they need bums on seats in, in the door to, to make back some of the revenue that they've lost in the first lockdown. And this was one of the, like, this goes back to my earlier point, which said about the sense of deja vu. Like, when the first lockdown happened, the, the kind of talk was that this will be a really good opportunity for the powers that be across the world in rugby to sit down and try and get more of an aligned calendar. Yet, really, that hasn't happened. So that's why it's been so tricky for the Champions Cup to find spaces in their calendar to play the games that were postponed last weekend. So you want to see the games go ahead. It's very hard to see right now how the South African kind of aspect of the URC can go ahead. It's no surprise that they've moved those games. But even I was reading today, Cardiff, uh, the Cardiff director of rugby, Dai Young, was basically saying that they need certain assurances before they were going to bring their squads back to South Africa. Now, if you imagine, if you remember that there was a certain group of monster players and coaching staff who unfortunately had to stay behind for, for even longer in, in Cape Town. So I don't think people are going to be over enamoured about the idea of going back while society in the world is as it is now it's just such a tricky situation because we, we, we might be disappointed that the games on St. Stephen's Day aren't going ahead but there's obviously massive more important issues at play here when you think about the health of the people themselves like people have a lot of kids you know parents and stuff so it's just a huge amount of uncertainty and it, it, it was pretty stark to hear someone like Pat Lamb such a big respected figure within the game saying that the English Premiership wouldn't survive another lockdown and you think of the the kind of money that's in the English Premiership, it would be, I would suggest, it's a lot more than what's in the, the URC. So I think that is a pretty stark warning for, for the rugby landscape at the moment. Yeah, it's really worrying. And I think the points that you outlined there really come back to to the risk of everything, you know, and making decisions and looking at that monster experience and, and worrying that it could happen again to another team and what will players and teams want to do. I'd say the uh, powers that be in the URC are sitting around trying to figure out what's the best thing that they can do to keep their competition intact because when it did start, Keen as well, you know, there was so much excitement around it eventually when it got going because the South African teams were coming and, you know, we thought we had a little bit of a handle on COVID and fast forward just a few months and we're in this horrendous situation really with so much uncertainty and um, insecurity just about the future of the of the games and the competitions as we know them. Yeah and I think like one of the things that kind of I feel like gets forgotten about is that like a lot of people assume that the players are in bubbles and while they are to a certain extent it's not like the the Ireland players let's say for example when they're in a bubble during during the November window it's very different like Leo Cullen has touched on this a couple of times over the last couple of weeks 
like he's got young kids in school like he still goes home at the end of every working day like anyone else does um, so like they're just constantly at risk there's only so much um, these guys can do to to protect themselves and to, to protect the integrity of the game but it's just because they're professional rugby players doesn't mean that they're immune to I guess the threats that myself and you are Marie so yeah it's pretty it's been a pretty grim I would say few days for rugby but it doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon unfortunately yeah, that's for sure. Okay, just before we finish up, Keen, just a couple of news bits today as well. Um, Alton Delan has confirmed that he's going to leave the province with reports suggesting he's going to go to La Rochelle, to Ronan O'Gara. Big loss for Connacht. Yeah, absolutely massive. Um, you think back to the summer as well, like uh, Connacht lost um, Quinn Roo as well. So that's two Ireland locks they're going to be without come next season. So you'd imagine they'll have to go back into the market now. They did sign Leva Fafita, uh, a Tongan lock, and he quite hasn't hit the ground running yet. So be a bit, bit, bit of pressure there. But yeah, look, it's it's a big loss, but I think it's a very exciting move for for Alton Delan if indeed he does end up at La Rochelle. Um, I know Racing were interested in in him as well, and you know he has to weigh up these kind of decisions himself. I'd imagine he probably looked at his the, the amount of game time he's gotten with Ireland over the last couple of years. He's never been a regular, so if a big French team comes in with a decent a decent contract offer, a lovely place to live, it'd be hard to turn it down. And obviously, you know, he's been, he's almost an honorary Connacht man, but he's, he's you know, pretty much a Munster man because he was born in Kerry, but the the attraction of working under Ron O'Gara and even Dunica Ryan, who's working as La Rochelle's forwards coach now, must be hugely attractive. And, yeah, look, it's, it's a big loss to Irish rugby. Um, I don't think we've ever properly seen the, the best of him. I think Alton Land still has, he's only 28, he's got loads of big years um, ahead of him, but it's a, it's a massive loss to Connacht and it'll be very interesting to, to follow his progress under Ron O'Gara and Dunnick Ryan if indeed he does go to the Irish show. I was always surprised at how few caps he got. Why do you think that he didn't make that impact that people were expecting of him? I'm not sure really because if you think back to his debut I think it was in Twickenham and he, he came off the came off the bench and he made this absolutely incredible run and you were kind of thinking wow this guy is a seriously special athlete I don't know uh, I think he's been injured to be fair at a couple of crucial times um, it's, it's been difficult for him uh, there's a, it, to be fair there's always been serious competition in the second row department uh, with Ireland which has probably made his, his task that little bit tougher as well but like I said, he has to think about himself at the end of the day. Um, I think it does leave Ireland a bit short. Like they do have, you know, guys like Ryan Baird, Thomas O'Hearn at Munster breaking through. But Delan has something I think about him, and he's he's really grown into a leader. I think at Connacht as well. Uh, when Qu- Quinn Roo left, that left a big, big void in Connacht, and he's stepped up there. He's calling lineouts these days as well. So um, it's disappointing from a Connacht's point of view, but I think. From Alton Delan's point of view, there's a lot to be excited about for the next few years. Yeah, for sure. And just on the injury front, then Ian Henderson looks like he's a doubt for the start of the Six Nations. Ulster confirmed that he's expected to be sidelined with an ankle injury for a number of weeks. Yeah, he just can't catch a break, and he think he's just back from his hamstring injury that he picked up um, for Ireland in the warm up. I think it was in the Argentina game, was it? So yeah, look, he's such a massive, massive bear for for Ulster but also for, for Ireland too and 
Ulster going along really nicely and I see Stuart McCluskey has picked up an injury as well and he's he's been going great guns too like his centre partnership with James Hume who just signed a new contract uh, today uh, so it's been a bit of kind of good news to offset the, the bad news really in Ulster but Henderson yeah he just hasn't been able to really string a run of games together since he's come back from the Lions and that's probably disappointing from his point of view because I know he's a bit frustrated with how the Lions tour panned out but look I think everyone knows how good Ian Henderson is on his day and to be fair I think in, in Irish rugby he's, he has he's one of the players who has ridiculous um, powers of recovery so fingers crossed he won't be out too long and that he will play some part anyway in Ireland Six Nations campaign if it goes ahead of course <laughs> So Keen, it's Christmas week and I've asked you about games getting cancelled because of Covid about Ian, Henders, Ian Henderson's injury and Ulton Delan leaving Connacht it's all bad news I know the the rugby, the rugby news cycle doesn't know when to stop, Marie. It's <laughs> no, just it relentless, one thing after another. But look, hopefully Ulster and Connacht and St Stephen's they can bring us some Christmas cheer. Yeah, well, we're clutching at straws there. I'd say, Keen Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. With Green Farm, fuel your day with Green Farm's high-protein cooked chicken breast fillet, 100% natural and packed with flavour. Game on on 2FM. Uh, welcome back. We are going to turn our attention to football. I'm delighted to say that Mark Langdon of the Racing Post joins us great. now. You know, it was so much fun. Mark, we just had a conversation about the situation with the rugby and it was all bad news because the Munster-Leinster game is off and there's a huge amount of uncertainty about the fixtures over the coming weeks. Do you have any good news for us, Mark? Um, no, um, unfortunately <laughs> not. Uh, carrying on the Christmas cheer. Um, it's, it's, it's mainly bad news. Um, you know, obviously I think most people will be aware of the issues that the Premier League and the English Football League have had. Um, you know, there's been calls from Celtic now to maybe move the, the, the winter break forward um, so, so that... Um, you know, sort of get a circuit breaker in, if you like, because obviously um, today Nicola Sturgeon announced that we're down to um, really small crowds of, of 500 people for matches and there's a the small matter of the old firm uh, coming up. Even in European football now, um, the, the Salernitana in Italy have asked for a game to be called off. They've got uh, financial problems as well. Udinese played a game the other day with, I think it was six or seven players out, Bordeaux are missing almost double digits for their game against Lille tomorrow evening, but the game goes ahead as it stands. So this is a problem right across European football. Of course, most of um, you know Europe will at least shut down for some time over the, the next week or so. The sort of English league is trying to carry on, but how much of the St. Stephen's Day um, fixture list sort of actually goes ahead remains to be seen. I was very surprised, actually, that they didn't cancel the games a couple of days after, like Jurgen Klopp was requesting, and that that felt like a sensible decision. But, um, you know, the Premier League will try to carry on where, where others have stopped. Why are they trying to carry on and, and so determined to carry on when a lot of logical minds are saying, let's just park it for a week or two, get everybody well and back on track? Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's maybe two different answers there. The cynical one is that um, it's all about the money and that um, the English Premier League, one of the reasons it is so successful at selling itself and selling the brand is that they play when others don't. And over Christmas and 
um, new year there is an opportunity you know that, that's just not there in, in other leagues the league are saying that they're already behind in certain fixtures and that by sort of cancelling a round of games isn't necessarily going to a stop the spread uh, and b you end up with sort of teams not playing games where they were perfectly capable of playing them and then maybe when they're then asked to play a few days later they're not able to and you actually make that fixture congestion even worse it's not one i massively buy um i always think that the that that game in between the 26th and, and new year's day is one that's not needed at the best of times most teams make you know, sort of six, seven, eight changes to the lineup. They're not going to be able to do that. And I do think that sort of player safety has to come into consideration here. Chelsea, then the, nobody, then the, nobody was getting the violins out for Chelsea because they're such a, a big club. And But what happened for them against Wolves on Sunday was that they felt the need that Kovacic, who wasn't fit, had to be on the bench. Um, and, and that really shouldn't happen, I don't think, in professional sport where you're, you're asking players that are not fit to be part of a, a match day squad because you, you otherwise you can't fulfil the fixture. You know, there, there's, there, there's being available for selection, but there's actually being fit to play. And I'm not sure that they're th- the same thing. Obviously, obviously, the broadcast of money is such a big uh, thing for English football. Do you think that has anything got to do with uh, BT and Sky maybe saying we need to have these fixtures on over Christmas? Do you think that would that would have an influence in it? I, I think it would have an influence certainly on the decision from the owners. I mean, Amazon are the, the ones that um, show that those fixtures on the, the sort of twenty eighth and twenty ninth, and um, they of course don't have many rounds of Premier League games now. Um, you, I'm sure the league could have cancelled them and then probably would have been a a payback of some sort to the TV companies. Um, You know, this happened in the last um, lockdown when there were, you know, queries over the contracts and the the, the row went on in in French football for, um, you know, a a long time afterwards because they cancelled their season. And, uh, of course, I think it would be... Um, it would it would be wrong to uh, assume that the Premier League only ever think of sort of um, you know the nice things. I mean, money is integral to the way that the Premier League runs itself. So, I, I would I would assume that that it definitely plays a part. Um, you know, there would be some people that say, well, you know, you don't dance with the devil and then complain how hot it is in hell. You know, if you want to take that money from the TV companies, then you, you know, you kind of have to play to their tune. Um, I think this is a a unique situation and, and one where maybe the, the, the clubs could have done a little bit more um, to... to, to I, I, I just think... It just it's it just going to leave, I think, the integrity of the competition open to debate if we get to a situation where um, you know a team that's fighting for the title or you know fighting against relegation or for whatever it is, it, it just puts out you know a, a joke of a team because they're unable to fulfil the fixture properly, but feel like that, that you know that they're obliged to to take part. There was a game in Portugal a few weeks ago, Belenenses against Benfica, that ended in farce when um, that they pretended they had some players injured, but they started that game with nine players. Um, and then, of course, we've had the situation in the Europa Conference League where Tottenham were kicked out for not fulfilling a fixture against Wren. 
when they would probably argue that that was in the the sort of the, the safety of everyone involved. They didn't have COVID under control, and yet they were, um, you know, eventually punished for not being able to fulfil the fixture. And so um, I'm not sure the authorities quite have got their grip on what should happen um, in, in these events and almost even if they're not making it up on, on a whim and that they have got rules in place I'm not sure the rules are, are good enough or actually applicable really for, for the current situation that we've got. Yeah and we've seen it in rugby here Leinster are appealing about their um, their cancellation of the Montpellier game because they were the ones with COVID but there was exceptions made then for games over the weekend when teams couldn't travel so there's definitely a lot of grey area and it does feel like this has nearly taken a lot of associations and um, powers that be in, in different areas of sport by surprise because they're not really ready for it and they don't know how to cope and there seems like a lot of the time as well they're they're making it up as they go along mm. and just yeah. on the points of, of why everything is still going ahead it was interesting to see Pep Linders today facing the media and just being so annoyed about the, the schedule and when you think of the situation that we are in with Covid as well he's obviously worried about the fact that they have to play two games in four days and the recovery it does feel like player welfare isn't top of the agenda yeah absolutely i mean yeah the, the clubs could have the, the, the clubs have the the power to to change this so you are wondering um all the ones all the ones that sort of speak publicly on the matter seem to want to have those fixtures uh, certainly the managers wanted to have those fixtures um postponed um thomas tuckle jürgen klopp and yet the clubs themselves, and so we're assuming that means that the owners and, and, and chairman have decided that, um, you know, that they want everybody to play on. So I'm sure that's caused friction between some managers and some owners or chairman or director of football, whoever it was, that sat in on, on those meetings because it is going against what appears to be the wishes of certain managers. And, and like I say, whenever they speak publicly on them, I can't think of too many that are of the opinion that you should just sort of stick your head down and carry on. So um, somebody's making these decisions, but it doesn't seem to be the sort of football people in inverted commas. And then on the flip side of all that, you have Phil Foden and Jack Grealish being pictured on a night out after their 7-0 win over Leeds just a few days ago. Yeah, um, I mean, Pep Guardiola, obviously from a position of strength, was able to to drop the two of them and make it very clear that that was unacceptable behaviour, particularly in these times. But it's it's one thing, I think, Pep Guardiola being able to do that. If you're a manager, maybe, of if you're a manager under pressure or you're a manager down at the bottom, would you be able to drop two of your best players in similar circumstances? I'm not so sure. I mean, it was really, really foolish of two instantly recognisable um, sort of men who are, you know, England internationals would be spotted e even in, in sort of if, if they were sort of wearing sort of baseball caps, but they were pretty blasé um, about being out. A ridiculous decision from them too. Not the first time that, that Phil Foden um, or Grealish have sort of been involved in sort of off-field issues during this COVID um, period. And I think that Pep Guardiola was absolutely right to do that. But like I say, it, it's easier probably for Pep Guardiola to do that, given the talent he's got that can replace the players. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if all managers would deal with that the same way, but um, at Manchester City, you, you, you've got no chance of getting away with that. 
That's so true, Graeme, isn't it? When you have a squad and you can leave Foden and Grealish and often and discipline them, you're in a pretty good place. Yeah, they're in a great place to be able to do that. But in fairness, if they go against the culture of the club, they're right to do it. And I agree there, but I think at any club, if anyone goes against the culture and, and what you're trying to do as a team, that's the discipline they should face. And whether they're at a big club or a small club, it sets the example for the rest of them, especially now. Like We're complaining about not being able to play games, going behind closed doors, the financial impact that'll have on, on clubs and, and then they go out because they're they're at a club that doesn't face the consequences of these financial um sort of sanctions that come on not sanctions but things that come onto the clubs like Grealish just signs for a hundred million uh, after coming out of a pandemic and then he's seen going out now. Like the the implications for Man City uh, of a pandemic don't really affect them as much as it does other clubs. So it's good to see that Guardiola has is aware of that and, and he and he's making a point. Yeah, for sure. And just on to Spanish football as well, Mark, do we still have a title race? Will we still have a title race after tonight? Well, I hope so, because uh, Real Madrid are threatening to run away with it, but Sevilla, six points behind. They've got Barcelona, who you know traditionally would be fighting for Real Madrid at the top of the table, um, way off the pace at the moment. So an opportunity for Sevilla to, to narrow the gap on Real Madrid. They beat the city rivals Atletico Madrid at the weekend. Lopetegui, the coach formerly of Real Madrid, if you remember, he was the, the, the guy who was the Spanish national team manager who agreed to join Real Madrid on the eve of, of the World Cup and was then sacked and unable to take Spain into that tournament. He's really rebuilt and restored his reputation at Sevilla. You know, they're a very smartly run club. I would expect Real Madrid to eventually win the league, but let's hope that Sevilla can uh, can push them all the way and, and, and sort of, you know, win this game because if they don't, it could almost be over by Christmas. I always talk to you, Mark, about my children because, interestingly, they support... Um, they support non-Premier League teams. Two of them do. One is PSG and the five-year-old is Atletico. So every day, like every second day, he's coming into me first thing in the morning saying, how did Atletico get on last uh-huh. night? And I say, well, they lost again and he stomps out of the room. <laughs> Time so <they're>, wasted. Time. <laughs> I think it's because he loves Luis, Luis Suarez. You know, it's a, it's a strange oh. one. He's always asking about Uruguay and all the rest. I don't know where he's getting it from, but they're still on a really bad run anyway. Yeah, for worst run for 10 years. Um, three defeats in a row. I think the fact that you know, three defeats in a row is sort of, you know, um, the worst sort of sequence of results in 10 years. Tells you how well Diego Simeone has done in sort of his time in charge. But um, there's the, the knives are out in certain places. I think that if you look at it, it's gone a little bit stale. Um, I'm not quite sure anymore of their identity. You always kind of knew what Atletico were about, um, you know, in, in their sort of glory sort of days. Now, the team just feels like a bit of a, a mix. There's a little bit of that old Simeone in some of the players. There's some maybe newer ones that are more technically able that aren't maybe putting in the kind of shift and organisation and defensive qualities that Simeone was kind of famed for. And you mentioned there Luis Suarez. He even fell out with Luis Suarez at the weekend, substituted him. Suarez, not for the first time in his career, sort of went off in a half. He is capable of that. But um, so... You know, Simeone's the, the highest paid coach in, in world football, so he's always going to be criticised if things don't go well because, you know, th- that's what they're paying for for him to sort of overachieve, if you like. I don't think he's on the verge of the sack, but it's really interesting to see how this team 
can they qualify for the Champions League and then what he does with them in the summer or has he had enough and feels like he needs a new challenge? It, it kind of feels like we're maybe at the end of a cycle or certainly coming towards it. Well, my little fella's only five, so there's enough time for him to get another team. I reckon it's probably a wise choice. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I think it would be a wise one. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Langan, thank you so much. We'll check in with you again soon and hopefully we will have football to talk about. We're going to take a very quick break and then we're back with John Kenny talking swimming. Game on on 2FM With Green Firm Have your dinner ready in a flash With Green Firm's high protein cooked chicken breast fillet Available in selected stores nationwide Game on on 2FM now, welcome back. It is time to talk swimming and John Kenny of Orty Sport is with us because, John, it is a week of swimming that just hasn't stopped giving Mona McSherry again impressing. Very impressive today. It's not her main event, the 200 breaststroke. She finished uh, fourth in the 50 breaststroke. Again, not her main event, but she did take a bronze in the 100 breaststroke. But she's had an incredible week. In fact, the Irish swimmers have had an incredible week in Abu Dhabi. They made um, numerous finals. They also picked up two medals. Ellen Walsh, we know that on the 400 IM earlier this week, and Mona, a bronze medal in the 100 breaststroke, the event that when she qualified for the final at the Olympic Games. 18 Irish records. Uh, Mona's taken eight of those. So when you consider that she was uh, 2 minutes 25.08 before the 200 breaststroke, she's now lowered that to 2 minutes 20. So what, five seconds off that uh, in the space of two meets or two uh, swims today, the first in the heat and then the second in the final. It just shows you what kind of form she's in. And also Alan Walsh as well, who's a Tennessee teammate, taking the two medals there. So I know it's short course, which is the 25-metre pool version. They will say sometimes as well that the world's elite, not all of the world's elite would attend a 25-metre event. But the fact that they actually can uh, break 18 records, make numerous finals as well, and uh, take two medals home. It just it's a, it's an incredible crop of swim swims from the Irish uh, team there this week. It really is. Well, let's hear from Mona McSherry reflecting on her week. It was a lot of fun. I haven't done a 50 in a while. It's not an Olympic event, so it hasn't really been a main focus for a long time. And, you know, it's been really nice to get back into just swimming really short and sharp races. I, I do love to do a little sprint. It was definitely frustrating to come fourth, and I think I held on to that anger for a little while, but um, once I worked through that and, you know, I had other races to focus on, it, it helped. And then we came to the 100 meter breaststroke. How was that final for you? Kind of like the Olympics again, the semi was more nerve wracking and then, you know, getting to the final, I was definitely a little bit nervous, but my teammates really helped me kind of see the more enjoyable side of it, I think. And that's, it's really important to have great friends like that, that you can kind of lean on when you are a little bit more nervous. And, you know, it was really nice. We were dancing before I went to the call room and, you know, that's, that's what it's all about, you know, just having fun and really enjoying it. And I think that's why I performed so well in the final. And in the final, what did it feel like? Where do you think that, that performance ranks for you? It's one, it's one of the best ones. It's definitely up there. You know, I think my first European um, senior medal is definitely above it just because of, you know, how much that meant to me. But this is definitely another amazing race. And, you know, winning a medal doesn't make it a better race than the fourth place or, you know, even the 200 tonight. But I think, you know, it's, it's another one that went really well and I progressed through the rounds. And, you know, it's nice to be able to look back at races like that and just remember that it did go so well. It seemed like that, that last 50 for you was where you, you got the medal. Um, talk us through that last 50. Yeah, I think in the semis, I kind of burned up a little bit. I got a little bit nervous when 
the the Chinese competitor beside me in the semifinal went out so fast, and I think I kind of doubted my abilities um, and ended up wasting a lot of energy mentally on that and ended up seizing up a lot and I couldn't finish the race the way I wanted to so coming into the final I was a lot more relaxed I knew what everyone around me was going to be doing and you know I just kind of have to put that out of my head and you know stay in my own lane and that's what I did and I just raced to the wall and thankfully I got there before uh, Atkinson. What are your plans for 2022? I think I'm just really excited to get more racing under my belt you know we have a world long course coming up and Europeans in the summer so it's going to be super busy as well as all the collegiate racing I'm going to be doing when I go back to the States before all of that so I think I'm just excited to get in and you know do a lot more race practice and get better at you know progressing through the rounds and learning from that and I guess just having fun and enjoying it because you know like like the COVID years showed us that you know racing can be taken away like that in a second and it's so nice to be back and able to compete with my teammates again. Mona McSharry speaking there about her very impressive week. John, you've known Mona for quite some time and listening to her almost relaxed attitude there, is that a change in her? That's the girl from County Sligo with the American accent now, isn't it? Yeah, very <laughs> It always relaxed. happens. It does, yeah. Um, it, it, actually, if you listen to the middle part of that, she was saying that she, uh, herself and her teammates were dancing before they went to the call room. So there's a call room, which is at the back of the main auditoriums in, in all swim meets as well. And it can be quite a nervy pace, but, place, but obviously she's got uh, somebody instructing her or telling her how to, uh, how to focus the mind. She said about Tang, the uh, Chinese girl, that she went out a little bit too fast with her in the heats of the 100 breaststroke and she changed her attitude, was more relaxed. She's talking about fun. So obviously the American psyche is going in into her head and they're using a lot of these sayings as well uh, to help them being relaxed in the pool. Ellen Walsh is a different kind of kettle of fish. She's more feisty, more determined, whatever, and, and actually fun to interview. Um, but we can't take away from what she did. A silver medal in the 400 IM was absolutely extraordinary. We got a final in the men's 4x2. Uh, to get a final as well for Jack McMillan in the 100 metres freestyle, that's just staggering uh, to go f- below 47 seconds. That's unheard of for an Irish swimmer because that's the blue ribbon to Ben. It's the big one, the 100 metres freestyle. Now, it is a short course, me as I said, that's 25 metre pool rather than a 50 metre pool. And John Rudd today, the high performance director, said we have to keep our feet on the ground in that sense. Uh, but this is a good transition from 50 to 25. Now they've got to bring it back to the 50 metres, as Mona was talking about there, uh, because they've got the European Championships and the World Championships in 2022. So progression is continuing let's hope it can continue into 2022 as well yeah for sure and it does sound as well that there is something special going on in Tennessee with the two girls uh, just really settling in and, and obviously performing off the back of it yeah what, what I've uh, heard from Walsh and from McSharry as well is that they're continuously racing all the time and they feel that that's the uh, the format that brings them through um, more traditional ways is just plough up and down the pool and do your training whatever but they have opportunities in the places like Tennessee to race consistently in a collegiate level and that seems to be the thing that's bringing them through and it's obviously working for them. Well, John Kenny, I hope that in 2022 you get dispatched to Tennessee for a special <laughs> report. It would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> it would, John Kenny. Thank you and uh, have a good Christmas. I'll oh, talk to you soon. Thank you. I'm, I'm on tomorrow. So, uh, oh, brilliant. Well, tomorrow tune in, everyone. All the best, John. JK Experience on Game On. Now, we are not done yet. Some good news to finish on. While well, the UK Premier Fitness event is coming to Dublin in April 2022 the National Fitness Games have partnered with the Titan Experience and Navy Blue Sports to launch the hottest new event in the functional fitness calendar and I am delighted to
to be joined on the line by the MD of Tightened Experience, Owen Conroy. Owen, we need a little bit of good news now, something to look forward to. I'm not sure that I'll be quite ready to compete in the functional fitness calendar, but I do have, um, I have great expectations. But what will this event be like? Yeah, certainly going to try and finish it. I've been listening to the show from the beginning, Marie, and as you, I think you said on Twitter earlier today, there's been an element of Groundhog Day for the last week or so for the for the event sector. I mean, uh, National Fitness Games Ireland has been nearly 18 months in planning. Um, truth be told, as you know, last summer we were looking down the lens of UEFA 2020, unfortunately. Um, events and events of that scale and even events like our own night run and Great Dublin Bike Ride, like so many other mass participation events in 2020 um, it was a constant cycle Marie of rescheduling dates moving dates changing and we'd obviously done a lot of work historically with Ironman Global and competitor groups so we just started to look to the UK and beyond to see if there was potential platforms you know compelling and brilliant fitness experiences that we could potentially bring to the Irish market that for want of better English you know, would be more COVID compliant, you know, more modest numbers, uh, people working out in pods, an opportunity to have a brilliant experience and still mindful that would there would probably be a level of um, COVID restrictions in place. And Niall, Niall Woods and Navy Blue, as you said, introduced me to Mark Morgan and Kenny Logan and Gabby and their team have founded National Fitness Games in 2018. It's one of the largest functional fitness brands now in the UK. So we started the journey with them in June of last year so um, and to uh, give yourself some hope it's open to <laughs> everybody from novices to intermediates so we're acutely as well aware Marie that we wanted this to be for as much about beginners intermediates as well as the elite so it's a full three day experience uh, it's going to take place in the UCD as you said in April of next year um, corporate games on the Friday and then teams of four competing on Saturday and Sunday with our elites on the Saturday night as well, which would be an excellent spectator event, subject to COVID uh, restrictions at the time. But yeah, it's 196 teams of four each day. So we're really, really looking forward to it as it's been um, a very tough quarter and a very tough year for the event sector. Yeah, it really has. So if anyone is sitting at home listening now and a bit like me have great... um, Great aspirations to be really fit in 2022. And there is a, a novice section, as you said, and then there yes. is the team and the elite. What kind of things are they, are anyone who decides to participate, yeah. what, what are they going to be doing? Yeah, well, it's it's the, um, the four areas across which the various exercise groups are um, uh, built under is speed, endurance, strength and power. Marie, so I could just see yourself and Billy and maybe uh, two other friends uh, taking on the, uh, you can break up the disciplines. You see you've everything from rowing, body squats, spinning, um, cross bikes, um, dead weight. So it's a real mixture of pretty much a lot of what you'd see in any uh, standard gym workout up and down the country. And the beauty then is the ability to mix up the disciplines between each other. And probably about six to eight weeks out from the Games, then based on the various teams that have entered, we'll be releasing more details on the various exercises that they'll be taking on in terms of the uh, the various disciplines so there is something for everybody and that's as I said something we we're very acutely aware of I mean you know for example the night run that we had for many years we were as conscious about talking to the 0 to 5k runner as that might come in at 45 50 minutes an hour as much as someone coming in at 27 28 minutes so definitely there's the makings of a great crochet and team there um, 
Well, the other thing as well, though, like fitness is such a big part of people's lives and an awful lot of people take it really seriously as well. And so um, there'll be plenty of people that will be quite interested in testing themselves against the best around. Yeah, I mean, we have on the weekend at Seven Square, we'll have Zach George over, who's the uh, UK's uh, fittest man at the moment, along with our own Paul Olima. And um, again, I guess it's like anything, Marina, more so than GEA, depending on what level, there's, there's, there's a level for everybody. And um, certainly the, I suppose, exciting element for us is that we'll be, it's the first year um, National Fitness Games Ireland is the first event outside of the UK so we'll be we'll be crowning inaugural champions right across the board so that's probably another exciting element to it as well And what would be the youngest age that, that you'd have your sort of people competing in it? Yeah, we recommend from 18, from 18, 18 upwards, okay. from 18 upwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over the years uh, in this space, we've seen um, some mum and dad sneak in 16-year-olds, <laughs> but 18 <laughs> upwards is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and is there an age limit? No, no age okay. limits. I mean, if you look at actually uh, nationalfitnessgames.com, you'll see there over the last two to three years, everybody from 18 right up to 78. Now the core, the core competition uh, from a competitor perspective is, you know, early 20s up to mid to late 40s, but it really is for everybody. And in terms then of what's coming down the track, Owen, you always have your finger on the pulse with mm-hmm. um, just how COVID is affecting things and, and what could potentially yeah. happen in the new year. How confident are you that we are going to be in a position where not only will we be looking ahead to, to something like this fitness event, the fitness games, but just in terms of sport in, in general, are we going to be um, in a situation where we can go to National League games, do you think, or uh, Six Nations games and, and just the sporting calendar in general? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, Keen touched on a lot of it earlier in the show. Um, I mean, the benchmark that we're going to be recalibrating from will be 5,000 from the end of January. And um, I guess, you know, working with the various governing bodies, um, I think we'd all probably like to work towards a most phased approach. I mean, it has been quite yo-yo in terms of 50% with stadiums, full capacity, back down to 5,000. I think you're probably going to see, I mean, for my sins, Marie, I'm a long-suffering Miami Dolphins fan, so I went over to New York to watch them in MetLife recently, and in terms of stadium access there, it was full COVID search, it was... um, ID, uh, no alcohol served after half time to minimise queues within the stadium and I think what we'd all maybe like to see and try to work towards with the governing bodies as well is a phased approach that 5,000 work towards 10,000 to 20 to 25 rather than maybe the, the, the up and down nature that we've experienced over the last year but I still would be um, very very hopeful, an awful lot of it is going to see how the Omicron side of things uh, breaks through over Christmas I mean, the economics of sports dictates as well that, you know, as much as we can, we do have to get people back into the stadiums in a safe manner because the economics of the sport depend on it, as Mark would have touched on earlier on the football side of things. So we've shown, obviously, over the last 12, 18 months, whether it's Sport Ireland, the GEA, the IRFU, that it can be done safely. It's just that we're in a particularly I suppose dark phase of this journey at the moment as we head into January. But I still would be very positive heading into 2022 certainly from probably March, April onwards. 
Well, Owen Conroy of Titan Experience, that is the perfect way to end being positive heading into 2022. Thank you so much for joining us. Graham Gartland, thank you so much as well for coming in. That is all we have time for, for today. John Kenny will be on for me tomorrow and then myself and Ruby will have a best of show on Thursday. So please do tune in. And Connor Bean is up next. With Green Farms, fuel your day the healthy way. With Green Farms on the go chicken bites, 100% natural and packed with protein. Available in selected Tesco's nationwide.